Good morning, listeners, and welcome to the Vicki Child Show on Hear Women Talk, produced and broadcast by the Zeus Radio Network. Thank you all for joining us today. I appreciate it very much. Today we have a great topic and, uh, and a great expert to talk about DNA. Last week we had Attorney Emily Johnston on talking about divorces and adultery and what's involved with that. Today Dan Demers is going to talk with us about using DNA to prove adultery and using DNA in, in a myriad of other things as well, including criminal cases. So if you have questions about using DNA for uh, adultery cases and documenting or corroborating adultery cases or um, any other civil or, or criminal question that you might have, we'll be happy to, to get those to Dan and talk about it. In my business, I do a lot of adultery work, unfortunately, but... Sometimes it becomes necessary to use DNA in those cases. I haven't had one in recent years that had to use DNA, but in the past I've had requests from clients who needed to know what was in their husband's underwear or what was in their wife's underwear, for instance. And as uh, as PG-13 or R-rated as it may sound, and you may want to cover up the kids' ears if any of you are listening, um, it's necessary sometimes because it either is the only way that we can substantiate the adultery or it becomes a, another corroboration through a different means other than just the surveillance. So I want to welcome to the show to, today Dr. Dan Demers, owner of Intelligenetics Lab. And Dan is going to join us and introduce yourself, Dan. Oh, good tell morning, us, Vicki. Tell us Thank a little you bit about yourself. Me. Thank you for being uh, on the show today. Thank you. Um, well, um, I've been uh, involved in DNA paternity and forensic testing for about 25 years, which is right about when DNA started to be used for these purposes. Started out uh, in, in graduate school, um, went to the Medical College of Virginia, and uh, I was working on a PhD in molecular pathology, and um, that was the mid-80s, and right about that time, uh, DNA started to be used uh, for the first time here in the U.S. and um, been involved with it ever since. The university had a uh, paternity and forensic laboratory, so I started out working in that laboratory. Uh, graduated with my Ph.D. in 1990 and went to work for a biotech company uh, outside Washington, D.C. They wanted to uh, start their own DNA laboratory, so I was hired to do that. And, uh, you know, that was an exciting time because DNA was really taken off. In you know, the early 90s, um, it was becoming more routinely used in parentage. And it took a little bit longer to become more routine in forensics. But, um, you know, by, by 1992, 93, it was really starting to roll out. Uh, the lab I started became one of the largest providers in the U.S., um, providing paternity and forensic testing services. Uh, we had our accreditation for parentage testing as well as forensics. And when I left that laboratory in 2003 to start Intelligenetics, um, it was one of only five laboratories approved by the National Institute of Justice to do uh, DNA testing for CODIS, which is the FBI National DNA Database, as you, as you know. Um, did a fair amount of work with national police agencies in a number of foreign countries. 
and uh, now at Intelligenetics, we're, we're accredited by the American Association of Blood Banks, that's the AABB, for parentage testing. We do a lot of immigration adoption as well as um, parentage for other purposes, such as divorce, um, social security benefits, that type of thing. And then we're also accredited by the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors Lab Accreditation Board. Um, too long to say, so we just call that ASCLAD Lab, and that is the premier accrediting agency for forensic DNA testing laboratories. And these accreditations that you mentioned are important because then if you have to go to court and, and express your credentials and prove that your lab is certified and, and accredited, then th that's really necessary to show that you know what you're doing and you've been approved to do what you're doing and that your lab meets the standards that are set. Yes, I, it, it's very important, and I don't think it can be um, overstated. Um, you know, just as in, in your own field of work, um, you, uh, you recommend people use a licensed private investigator. Um, in, in DNA testing, it's always important to use a laboratory that's accredited um, because that guarantees that they are following at least some minimum standards and that they're inspected. So the accrediting agencies actually come into the laboratories that they accredit, and they look them over and check their work and make sure that you know they're doing things properly. So um, if somebody's needing a paternity or maternity test, um, they should uh, use a laboratory that's accredited by the AABB. And it's, there's a lot of uh, misleading information out there on the internet and things. Do not always uh, are not always what they appear on on a on a fancy website. So you know people really t need to do their own due diligence and make sure that the lab they're using is accredited. So in the case of paternity, you know log into the American Association of Blood Banks website and look at the to make sure that the lab that they're going to do business with actually is on that list. Or if they're doing using a forensic laboratory, lab log into the um, ASCLAB lab. Um, website and make sure that the lab themselves is actually accredited. Some, some labs or some businesses, they're not accredited, but maybe they send their work off to an accredited lab. That puts you one kind of one step removed and can create complications, you know, if the case should need court testimony. Right. So when, when we're talking about adultery cases or family court cases or, or civil cases where there might be a paternity issue that doesn't involve a divorce or, or a custody necessarily, but, but the proof needs to be shown. When we're talking about court, then testifying is important, credentials are important, lab accreditation is important, and certification. And all those things, if, if somebody's going to use a, a DNA expert or a, a particular lab, they at least need to know that that lab meets those standards. And so when it comes to court, it's not thrown out because of all these violations that certain labs or certain doctors have had. And in adultery cases specifically, if we talk about those for a minute, in what I do in my business, I do a lot of surveillance, of course, and we document adultery and people going into hotels and, and all that kind of stuff. But the other way to corroborate that if if the uh, the evidence is there is is by analysis of 
semen or, or vaginal fluid. And what some private investigators, and I, I've been involved in these before, but I usually let the, the client, and this was before um, years ago, but I usually just let the client deal directly with the lab, send the information to the lab, and then the lab analyzed it. If, if private investors, investigators, though, get involved, one way to do that is to properly collect and maintain a chain of custody of the particular underwear, if, if, the, if, if underwear is the item, and then transfer that to you, and you would analyze it and tell us what. Uh, it would depend on on the question, um, and, and as you know, there's there's just um, uh, a multitude of different scenarios. But one possibility, using the underwear um, case that you you brought up, if if they want to know if there's semen, common question is there's semen in the underwear. Um, the underwear can be secured by the private investigator, um, sealed, um, you know, documented shipped or delivered to the laboratory and then once we receive it it depends some some um, private investigators and the client um, only want to know is there semen there and so we have a test that will answer that question and in some cases that's all they want to know because that answers the question for them others want to take it a step further um, and if and if the answer is yes there is semen there then they want to know, well, who does it belong to or, or, or who does it not belong to. So if, if a husband finds his wife's um, underwear and, and he sees something suspicious, um, well, he may want to know, is that semen? And then furthermore, he may want to know, is it his semen? And, and doing a DNA test is the way to determine that. So if, you have a, if I have a client, for instance, and it, let's say that the, the client is a man, although it can be done in either case. But let's say the client is a man. The man's been away on business trip. He comes home. He sees his wife underwear, wife's underwear on the floor. And he goes, okay, that's a little suspicious, and I've been out of town. It's not me. Right. So he wants to send those. And you're, you can do a presumptive test to show that it's semen, first of all. But if you go a step further and you, you do a DNA analysis, then if we don't know whose it is, we can rule out the husband by doing a cheek swab from him and sending that to you as well, and you can say, okay, this is not the husband's. Yeah. And then, if we want to go a step further and we are following this woman around, perhaps she goes to a, a restaurant or a bar and she meets the guy, then we could grab his beer bottle or his glass or a cup or can that he's been drinking from, or if he throws a cigarette butt on the ground. Then we can send that to you, and you can compare that with the analysis you did on the semen, and you can tell us if it's a match. That, that, that's correct. And, 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 the, and the items that you just mentioned, they're all good sources of DNA, and they're all um, items that are just routinely sent in by private investigators wanting to answer that question. Another point that's just important to note here while we're on that subject is um, many men um, have had vasectomies, so they produce semen, but they do not produce sperm. Mm-hmm. Uh, or and some men are just naturally have very low or no sperm count, um, but with the DNA techniques that we have, we, we can still proceed and, and answer these questions. So it does; it's not dependent just on the presence of sperm cells. Okay, so in a case like that, the things that we would would need to know and need to be able to prove 
is that the underwear belonged to the man's wife, and that can either be done, well, I guess there are a couple of ways. Number one, we, we assume that nobody else is going to be in the house discarding their underwear on the floor, but if there's vaginal fluid there, you can also say for certain that it belongs to the wife if we have a comparative sample. Yes, and, and some, that's a good, also a good point um, because sometimes that question comes up. Um, I've, I've worked with investigators that they're not interested in establishing that the underwear actually belongs to the woman in question. Um, and, and then there are other circumstances Well, the woman claims, well, yes, those aren't, those aren't even mine, or yes, they're mine, but, you know, I didn't wear them. I loaned them to my friend, um, something like that. And, and in that case, it may be important to develop a female profile. So we, we actually have the, the techniques that allow us to take a garment like that and develop a separate female profile, um, which mm-hmm. can establish who the garment belongs to, and we can also establish a separate male profile. Okay. Now, can, can Joe Blow Citizen out there send something to you without it going through a private investigator or a law enforcement? Uh, they can. Um, I prefer that it goes through a, a private investigator. I prefer an investigator to be involved um, because it, it adds a degree of legitimacy to it. Um, if if an individual doesn't want to involve a private investigator and they just want to answer the question, they can do it, but it's not going to carry the weight um, if it should go to court. It's, it's going to mostly be for informational purposes um, and, and because there would be no chain of custody, of course. Right, and it, it it brings into question the um, validity of the specimen being submitted. So, the answer is yes. The, the private individual can submit it themselves, but it's not going to have the same weight that it would if a private investigator is involved. But if they just want to answer the question, um, is that semen, or and if it is, is it mine? And I just want to know for my own information, um, they can do that. Okay, we we had another chat question about what this cost what what is the cost to do this and I, I know you have a probably have a cost for a presumptive test that's positive for semen but you also have test if you do the full-blown DNA and then analyze it to something else that's been collected to get an identity so you know you don't have to be really specific because each case is different but generally what are right. we talking about as far as cost uh, generally, if, if somebody just wants to know, is it semen, it's $250. And um, if they want to go a step further and do DNA testing, it's $400 per item analyzed. So if you're doing, a, say, a garment and, and then perhaps a reference sample from somebody, um, you know, that reference sample might be, like you said, the cigarette butt or the Coke can that was secured. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you'd be looking at somewhere around uh, $800 to $1,200, depending on what was submitted and how many things were submitted. Right. And one of the things we learned last week with our with our guests talking about adultery is that in South Carolina, and there aren't too many states probably that this happens in, but in South Carolina, if you are um, accused of and it's found that you have committed adultery, you can be barred from alimony. And so yeah, while it's expensive on the on the upfront thing, uh, alimony savings over the rest of your life, or at least right. until your ex spouse gets married again, that's a huge saving. So it it can save somebody in the long run. It it can be the best spent money you've ever you've ever yeah. seen. Yeah, 
really. Yeah, exactly. Um, I want to give some information out. If you have questions to call in to our uh, guest today, you can call 646-652-2071. You can also chat online. And if you want more information on Dan and Intelligenetics, you can contact him at www.iglab.info. And we're going to take a break in a minute, Dan, but what I want to do when we talk more about this issue is, is get a little bit more specific in the DNA analysis, and then we'll move into the, the paternity issues as well okay. and how, how some people might have questions about that and how it relates to identifying whether or not a child belongs to a, per, a certain person and what's involved with that testing and, and how that holds up in court as well. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about those issues. Our guest today is Dan Demers with Intelligenetics Lab, in, which is located in Hilton Head, South Carolina. So we'll be right back. Stay tuned and call with your questions or chat online. Thank you for joining us, and we'll be right back. Hi, folks. This is private investigator Vicki Childs, host of the Vicki Childs Show on Hear Women Talk Radio. How safe is your cell phone? Is someone listening to all your calls or reading your text messages? How about your computer? Is someone watching all your keystrokes? Or do you want to know what your child, your employee, or your spouse are doing on a computer or cell phone? If you need computer or cell phone forensics, do what I do. Talk to Steve Abrams at AbramsForensics.com. Steve is a highly respected and skilled forensics expert as well as an attorney. Contact Steve Abrams for a free 15-minute consultation at abramsforensics.com. That's abramsforensics.com. Or click on the Abrams Forensics banner ad on Hear Women Talk and use promo code HWT. Welcome back to the Vicki Childs Show, produced and broadcast by the Zeus Radio Network for Hear Women Talk. You can call in your questions today at 646-652-2071, or you can chat online and ask the questions. And today our special guest is Dr. Dan Demers with Intelligenetics Lab in Hilton Head, South Carolina. Dan is talking to us about DNA in, in adultery cases, and we're going to get into some criminal cases too. Dan, before the break, we were talking about if uh, if a man comes home and finds his wife's underwear and it looks like there's something suspicious there, that that can be sent in and you can tell whether or not it's semen and then possibly later identify that person right. who who left it there. Um, during the break, I had a question about women and whether it, it's, it works for the reverse, and it does. If a woman comes home and finds a man's underwear and there's suspicious-looking stuff there and she knows she didn't do it, then, yes, you can also send those in and then you can analyze those um, both for the presence of vaginal fluid and the presence of semen, correct? It, it, it is correct, but in that particular case it gets a little more tricky because it will depend on the circumstances um, of the case. In, in the case of a, a woman's panty, um, she has intercourse with somebody, she dresses and there will be drainage into her garment, and that drainage right. is going to be collecting her cellular material um, as well as that of the man if, if it's there. Um, in the case of the man's garment, um, the woman's 
portion, the cellular material or, or vaginal discharges may not be there. So um, it's, it's it, it, I wouldn't say it's never there. It is sometimes can be found. It just depends on the circumstances. Um, if, 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 if they have intercourse and he immediately dresses, you have a better chance of finding it. I've actually found women's cells, women's DNA, female DNA, um, on on the garment itself, on on on, on the band. Um, I had a private investigator. I, I I don't know what the circumstances of the case were, but he sent me in a pair of men's underwear, and, and he he told me to um, you know swab the waistband. Um, because he had reason to believe that the, the garment had been on the woman, and, and indeed I found female DNA in the waistband of the man's undergarment. So I had the woman's <laughs> DNA in the waistband, I had the man's semen, so it, it worked out really well. So, I mean, private investigators have become very sophisticated at, you know, knowing how to use it and when to use DNA testing. Okay, and it, it, so that is a little bit unusual to find it in the waistband, but and if also if... If the man has used a condom, then it decreases the, the chance of semen being present, but not always eliminates it, and also might not eliminate other, other either touch DNA or, or bodily fluids that could be there, correct? You're, you're correct again. Um, if a condom is used um, and, and, the, and they're careful then all the semen will be contained, and um, it's a matter of them how well they handle it and dispose of it. Sometimes they, you know, um, still manage to lose some on whether it be the bed sheet or a blanket or um, wherever they happen to be, um, and it may also transfer into the man's undergarment. Um, and, and, and that just depends, again, on, on the circumstances of the case. So we could also have a situation where whoever was there having this adulterous affair could have taken a shower and there might be a towel or a bath cloth or, or some other item with that person's DNA on it um, that could, could be analyzed and compared. So it's not always just the underwear, but that's probably the best source. Yeah, the, 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 the place, um, whether it be, um, you know, a, a, a house or whether it be a hotel room or an automobile or wherever it happens to take place, um, there's a good chance that there's a DNA left at the scene. Um, as you mentioned, uh, towels, the bed sheets, blankets, pillowcases, um, tissues, um, um, you know, facial tissues people commonly mm -hmm. use. Um, mm -hmm. Even if the man wears a condom, you know, he if he gets dressed uh, right away, he may have some discharge, continued discharge himself. So it it takes very very little for us to get a positive result. Now and, somebody uh, asked the question online whether the semen had to be fresh, <laughs> and I, I answered back that crusty is fine. Isn't that true? That it doesn't matter if it's fresh. Uh, th that's correct. I mean, it seldom comes to us in liquid form. Um, it's usually sometime after, and mm -hmm. and it actually will survive pretty well. The, the best way to protect it is to allow it to dry, actually. Um, if people are have some suspicions and, and, and they collect something and, and they don't get to it right away, um, they're not, not sure if they want to send it in, whether it be a private individual or be a private investigator or be a police agency, the best thing you can do for biological evidence, whether it be blood or semen or 
saliva is let it dry and then store it in something <coughs> excuse me store it in something that breathes like a paper bag or an envelope not right. plastic don't put it in a plastic bag right correct and and then keep it in a just a temperature controlled environment not not refrigerated but just you know an air conditioned humidity controlled environment okay now i want to i want to move on to talking about paternity and, and if anybody has a question you can still call in and we can go back to the adultery issue but in in matters of paternity the cases where i've had testing involved with my clients is when maybe there was an affair or or maybe before a marriage there was a pregnancy and the the male wasn't quite certain that it was his child either because of a vasectomy or using condoms or whatever the case may be and then the paternity testing sometimes is court ordered and because it ad it addresses or involves um child support so in, in cases of paternity though do you have to wait till the child is born or are there tests that can be done prior to the birth of the child uh, that's a good question, and it's one that comes up um, commonly. Um, it, it can be done any time after conception. So, you know, at the time of conception, you have a single egg from the woman, a single sperm cell from the man. Those come together. You now have a complete complement of DNA chromosomes, DNA. Mm -hmm. And and that uh, one-cell embryo starts to divide, um, and uh, basically a DNA test can be done um, in theory, from that point forward. Um, in practice, uh, it can be done prenatally through uh, amniocentesis or CBS, right. chorionic villus sampling. Um, it can be done on, on, from spontaneous abortuses, um, uh, fetal remains, um, and it can be done at, from the time of birth um, and any time thereafter. So the DNA is the same. It doesn't change. And if, the, if we're talking about trying to compare a child to a to a biological father then we would be it's, it's as simple as a cheek swab isn't that right so it's not painful to the child to a baby for instance correct um the, the technology back in the when i started all this you know um in the 80s and early 90s um we we needed blood um the technology was different such that we needed um a, a fairly good sized sample and that was generally blood um, today, the technology is developed to the point where it's very sensitive and we only require very little DNA. And now the most common way to collect a sample, whether it be from uh, an adult or a child or, or a baby, is, is a, as you said, a, a buckle swab, a, a cotton swab that is just gently rubbed on the inside of the cheek um, to collect some cells. And that gives us more than enough DNA to do um, many analyses. Mm -hmm. And I've been involved in cases where getting the sample from the child was not difficult. Getting the sample from the suspected biological father might be, but that, again, can be court-ordered, especially if the suspicion is strong enough to to um, convince the court that it needs to be court-ordered. And then that person can be required to give a sample. And then you could analyze those and tell whether or not that child was from that man. Correct. That's a, you're correct again. Um, as as I think um, we kind of briefly touched on, um, the child is a composite of the mother and the father. The child gets half its DNA from the mother, 
half from the father. So uh, we can actually do, we prefer to include the mother in the test. We can actually do the test without the mother, just a child and, and the man alleged to be the father. And um, comparing the DNA profiles, we can determine uh, if he is not the father or if he matches the child, then we can calculate the probability of paternity, which with today's technology will be greater than 99.99% certain um, of parentage. Okay. And, and we can uh, do the same thing with maternity as well, um, you know, in cases of immigration and adoption and, um, and, and other reasons that, that come into play uh, in today's world. Sometimes it's necessary to do a maternity test to, to prove that the mother is, is the mother. Mm -hmm. um, can be used in surrogacy, um, you know, where the woman giving, uh, giving birth to the child is, is unrelated to the child, you know, surrogate mother. Right. In I had a case... case you, want to, you want to prove that the um, some other woman, unrelated to the birth mother, is actually the mother of the child. So right, right. So it, it works in both cases. And years ago, I had a case, Dan, where my client was the man. He suspected his wife of adultery, but that wasn't the issue he hired me on. The issue he hired me on was that the, his wife had a baby, and he believed that that baby, he wanted to believe that that baby was his. He suspected that it might not have been, but he honestly and truthfully did not want to know. And he did not pursue the paternity issue because he wanted that child, whether it was his or not, he wanted to be the child's father. And a huge custody battle ensued. And it turned out that she was claiming it wasn't his he didn't want any testing to try and determine that. So the, during the custody fight, she only had, because of alcohol problems and numerous other problems, she only had restricted and, and supervised visitation with that baby. And um, during the restricted and supervised visitation, the supervision was not constant. It was somebody dropping by, a court-appointed person to drop by and supervise. But she ended up absconding with that child, taken off with that child, and that was about 13 years ago. And the last time I checked with his lawyer, they had still not been found. They literally disappeared. And she had, she had means and she had opportunity to hide. And they still have not been found. And that man still ha doesn't have his daughter back. And it, it, it's been a pretty bad situation. But I, so I have seen, though, where some men don't want to know. They really don't want to know because they want the child to be theirs and they perceive the child to be theirs and they leave it at that. But in in cases where the testing is done and and it's determined that that child is not his, then either the marriage will survive it or not. But the it can affect both custody or, or visitation and it also can and most likely will affect child support. Yeah, so. you, you know, it, that's a good example, you know, of today's complex society. There's many situations. Um, sometimes um, people want to know. Um, some, sometimes people just don't want to know. They've accepted the child and, and they want to, you know, just to, uh, believe the child is theirs and let it go with that. I had a, a case recently ourselves where um, the child was adopted out of Guatemala by, uh, into, into a European family, and now the adult was going back 
to Guatemala as an, as an adult um, looking for her birth mother. And um, so she was trying to track down leads. Um, and so there's all kinds of, of scenarios that, that come up today. Yeah, there are a lot of different scenarios, and, and I want to talk a little bit about mitochondrial DNA when we come back and, and let you explain that and explain how it's extracted and how it's proven if, uh, if a child belongs to a, a mother, for instance, and we'll, we'll go through that because it, it comes up in the news a lot, especially with missing people, and I want our listeners to understand what it is, and then we'll talk a little bit about it and when it's used and how it's used and whether it's as accurate or or not as uh, blood or saliva DNA. So we're going to take a break. Remember, you can call in your questions at 646-652-2071. And this is the Vicki Child Show, produced and broadcast by Zeus Radio Network for Hear Women Talk. Stay with us, and we'll be right back. Hi, folks. This is private investigator Vicki Childs, host of the Vicki Childs Show on Hear Women Talk Radio. How safe is your cell phone? Is someone listening to all your calls or reading your text messages? How about your computer? Is someone watching all of your keystrokes? Or do you want to know what your child, your employee, or your spouse are doing on a computer or cell phone? If you need computer or cell phone forensics, do what I do. Talk to Steve Abrams at abramsforensics.com. Steve is a highly respected and skilled forensics expert as well as an attorney. Contact Steve Abrams for a free 15-minute consultation at abramsforensics.com. That's abramsforensics.com. Or click on the Abrams Forensics banner ad on Hear Women Talk and use promo code HWT. Welcome back to the Vicki Child Show on Hear Women Talk. Today our guest is Dr. Dan Demers with Intelligenetics Lab. And you can reach him at iglab.info or iglab at yahoo.com if you wanted to contact him with any questions after the show. If you have questions during the show, please either chat them or call in and we'll be happy to get uh, get those questions to him. Um Dan, I had a question before we talk about mitochondrial DNA. I had a question from a, a listener online, and uh, they're asking what's involved if someone wants to find out their genealogical heritage. For instance, if they're from the British Isles or Greek or Polish or American Indian, etc. How how does somebody do that, and what would that cost? And is there a database, I guess, that you would compare that DNA to to figure that out? That, that's a question that comes up more and more. Um, in fact, we had a caller uh, just the other day asked, inquiring about that, and we get calls like that probably a you know handful each year. Um, it's it's not a, a service that we provide, and um, it's it's generally not a service provided by labs that do paternity and forensic testing, but it is a service provided by labs that specialize in in that type of service, ancestry testing. And um, it, it is um, a service that's been developing over the years. Um, it's not, it's some, I, I don't know the, um, there's services you have to look online. Um, I, I think it, it can be done, um, it, but, it, you know, it's buyer beware kind of thing, like most things. Right. Um, you want to do your homework and make sure you're selecting um, a company that can deliver what they say. So right, so they that. might send you a kit and tell you to swab your cheek and then mail it back to them and they can tell you that kind of stuff. And and like you said, though, buyer beware. 
Um, so it would be worth right. be worth checking them out before you did that. Uh, before the break, we talked about mitochondrial Exactly. Before the break, we talked about mitochondrial DNA and and how that works. Explain to the listeners what it is and how it works. Well, the testing we've been talking about up to this point is has been what we call um, nuclear DNA testing. It's the DNA from chromosomes, which are in the nucleus of the cell. Uh, the other type of DNA testing, as you mentioned, is mitochondrial DNA testing. Um, and it comes from a very special type of DNA uh, that is found in the mitochondria of the cells. So um, the mitochondria are kind of the, what they call the powerhouse of the cells. The mitochondria within your cells produce the energy that your cells need to function. And the, the, what's very useful about mitochondrial DNA testing is whereas a cell has a single set of chromosomes, um, any one cell may have hundreds of mitochondria within it. So it gives you many more targets to test from the same source of DNA. It's, it's mitochondrial DNA, and it's done a, diff, a little bit different. The testing is done through DNA sequencing um, for the most part. Um, it's a test that was probably used more 10 years ago than it is today. Um, and, and the reason is that DNA mitochondrial DNA sequencing was used in those cases where they had really limited material. You know, perhaps it was um, a decomposed body, um, there was no tissue, the skeleton was in really bad shape, um, and they had to resort to mitochondrial sequencing in order to get any genetic information. Today, we can handle most of these kinds of cases. Uh, the technology has improved, the sensitivity of the technology has improved, fortunately, that we do not have to resort to mitochondrial DNA sequencing very often. Um, Mitochondrial DNA testing is going to cost thousands of dollars per sample versus routine testing, which is cost hundreds of dollars per sample. Mitochondrial sequencing is going to take uh, a month to several months to, to get your results versus routine testing, which is going to take a week to a couple of weeks to get your results. So those are some of the differences. Um, you already, I, I've spoken with you a number of times about this, Vicki, so I know that you know that um, mitochondrial DNA is maternally inherited. Yes. It, it comes from the mother, so it can, it's not going to be a positive identifier, but it can certainly narrow it down to a maternal lineage, and in some cases that's sufficient. Um, on, on the other side, um, nuclear DNA, routine DNA testing that we generally do in paternity and in forensic cases um, is DNA that's inherited from the mother and the father, and that's why it's useful in paternity cases. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a specialized um, um, nuclear test that zeroes in on the male Y chromosome, that's Y chromosome testing, and that can be very useful in establishing a male lineage. So you have mitochondrial DNA to provide a maternal lineage if, if that's needed. You have um, Y chromosome testing to develop a male lineage if that's useful, and that can be useful in men uh, that have had a vasectomy, for example. Let me ask you this. I've, I've, because this, is, this has come up before. I've had people call me and say I got underwear. But I've also had people call me and say, I was gone for a week, and when I came back, and during the time I was gone, the maid came, cleaned the house, and when I came back, there were long hairs on the floor. Mm 
long hairs that aren't my color and they aren't my length and those hairs would be in a brush or on the floor or in the sink or in the tub or whatever and a lot of people think oh I could just send in the hair and get it analyzed and prove it's not mine and prove whose it is explain explain a follicular tag or a follicle on hair and and when you can use hair and when you can't in, in the um, that's a question I get quite often as well and um, generally what I'll do is if, if that is the usually there's some other source of material to test um, so it, you kind of have to handle on a, on a case-by-case basis so I, I always you know encouraged that, that's what's nice about working with a private investigator is, you know we can talk about the case and I can learn more about what's going on but uh, if we want to do routine DNA testing using hair it has to have um, a hair follicle. It has to have that little bit of tissue that's at the end of the hair that you see when you pluck a hair out. So cut hair or fallen hair generally isn't going to be useful in routine DNA testing. Um, if it's been pulled hair um, and it has that little bit of tissue at the end of the hair, um, then we can do DNA testing on that. So and I, is there, what's the cost involved with that? Is it the same roughly as the, uh, the, the blood same. or something? Yeah. It's about okay. the same. Now, if the only thing you have is uh, a fallen hair um, and, it's, and you, you know, really want to have results from that, then mitochondrial DNA sequencing may be your only alternative. But generally, in most circumstances, there is other genetic material available. And, you know, in the case of the woman who came home and saw hairs, um, you know, if she looked around, she may find other evidence in the trash. Um, might be a, a wine glass, you know, that didn't get washed yet. or Could be a tampon. A right. tampon works very, very well. You know, anything that is out of place. Okay. So let's move on then to the, the criminal stuff. We'll move out of the civil stuff. Again, if anybody else has any questions, though, they can certainly um, call in or, or chat in. But... Uh, in criminal cases, specifically rape and murder that most people are familiar with from watching CSI or, or reading books and they expect DNA to be found at these kinds of scenes, what's involved with rape, for instance, and being able to, if the rapist uses a condom, what else is going to be there for you? Um, well, in, in those kinds of circumstances, um, you know, you have a violent act um, and in almost always there's going to be something else there if, if the um, police that are investigating and collecting the evidence are thorough um, they, may, they may find uh, ev- they may find biological evidence um, at the point of entry um, depending on how the person got into the home or the apartment um, it, if there was um, some kind of a struggle there might be uh, DNA under the woman's fingernails um, there could the uh, blood from the perpetrator that may have been left. Um, many times these people go in and um, they do, as you know, Vicki, um, all sorts of things from eating and drinking um, to mm-hmm. using the bathroom, and, and, and they may sometimes leave clothing behind. Um, so there, there's a lot of different sources of DNA besides semen. And, and if if, uh, if during this if during this rape he he kissed her neck or or licked her or um, kissed some other part of her body or used his mouth on some other part of the body there's there's the saliva and then there's something called uh, touch or contact DNA and explain what that is. 
um, you're, you've identified another uh, good source, um, saliva. Um, if, if the perpetrator was um, uh, kissing or licking the person's neck or some other part of the body, uh, saliva is being deposited, and that can be collected with a cotton swab, um, a moist cotton swab, just um, as it's done with a buckle swab, gently swabbing that area. Um, that's a source of DNA. Um, contact DNA or touch DNA is kind of what it sounds like. Um, it's when somebody picks up something, um, they touch something, they transfer some of their DNA. That's why, you know, it's it's virtually impossible to walk into um, a room and and not leave something. You know, we all mm -hmm. shed DNA whether we want to or not. So. Um, if the person was drinking from a Coke can or a water bottle or a glass, um, every time they put that glass or bottle up to their mouth, they're leaving DNA cells on the can. And even just um, touching, you know, picking up the can repeatedly. Um, you know, we've, we've done burglaries and, and auto thefts where, you know, the police swab the door handle of a car or the steering wheel and they're able to pick up enough DNA from the um, person um, to make an identification. So the same thing would apply in these kinds of crimes. There's, there's and in talking about the, the, the touch DNA and the, um, or the contact DNA, I, I believe, if I remember correctly, even in the John Bonet Ramsey case, they eventually identified some touch DNA and, and had enough there that they were able to prove that it wasn't either of the parents. Um, and I remember that from the news. I don't, I don't have the specifics in front of me, but that, that was a case, a prominent case, where touch DNA was used. Um, to, to tell you the truth, I, I, I don't recall um, the touch DNA evidence that was presented on that. Yeah, case. that, that, that it, was, it uh, of course, years later. It was years yeah. later. It, but um, I also want to mention... Go ahead. I was just gonna say it's, it's certainly something that is being used more and more today, um, and, mm -hmm. and in part that's because the technology has developed to the point where, you know, the lab can provide the sensitivity to pick up that DNA. And uh, it's just being used in, you know, items that are, are picked up, whether it's um, a, a tool or um, a, a door handle or, or um, a glass or something like that. Anything that and, and like you said, too, sometimes when people break in or they commit another crime, whether it's rape or murder or, or just a burglary, when they break in, they, they sometimes will eat something or discard a tissue or, um, or they may uh, smoke a cigarette and leave the cigarette butt or go to the bathroom and touch things. And so there, there's all sorts of evidence, in addition to fingerprints now, that gives police officers and law enforcement the tools that they need to, to uh, capture these folks. And, and one of the ways they do that is evidence information is entered into CODIS. You mentioned CODIS earlier, which is the Combined DNA Index System. And DNA from, from crime scene evidence can be entered into CODIS. And if they don't get a hit from a perpetrator that's in CODIS, then later on that person might be arrested for another crime and be entered in CODIS. And then, boom, they get a hit not only on the crime they've been arrested for, but also on an older crime. So CODIS has been instrumental in... Solving cold cases when cold cases and evidence is run back through, and it's also been instrumental in solving new cases based on old information that was put into the computer. So uh, in burglaries, you you mentioned uh, 
how everybody leaves something. And I had a case, which actually it was my cousin's house, was set on fire back in about 1990. Some guys broke into the house. In order to try and cover up any evidence of them being there, they piled clothes on the bed, set the house on fire, but but all that burned basically was clothes and then had a lot of smoke damage. But in the process of that, a neighbor saw these guys leaving and had called the police and had the car stopped. Well, the police did a terrible, terrible job of of paying attention to any of that, even though one of the suspects took off running. They There was evidence in the car, uh, things that they had stolen from my cousin. And then I was not very far away at the time, so I went to the house while the police were still there. Lo and behold, in the toilet, somebody had taken a poop, one of the suspects, because my cousin and her roommate had actually been gone for a day or two they weren't even home but it was in the toilet and none of it was ever taken none of it was ever analyzed or compared to these guys that were arrested and uh, subsequently at trial these guys walked nobody got convicted and and it, it it's a shame but even whether it's vomit or somebody ate an apple and and left some dna or drank out of a glass and left some dna or took a poop in the toilet or threw up and there have been cases where there's been uh, vomit at crime scenes as well that's the kind of stuff that can be taken and dna can be extracted from that talk a little bit about identical twins because identical twins while they don't share fingerprints and nobody else does they do share dna if they're identical correct uh that's right identical twins are um, also referred to as monozygotic twins um, also referred to as um paternal uh, or maternal twins, identical twins. So that is, they've, they've come about through the union of one egg and one sperm, um, and that growing embryo at some point early in embryogenesis has split to um, create two identical embryos. And so they have identical DNA. Um, as you also know, um, they may not have, or they will not have identical fingerprints, but their DNA will be identical. So... Um, it actually brings me uh, brings a, an old case to mind that I did many many years ago in the early 90s. Um, it was a case of uh, child support, and uh, the woman had named two men in the case who happened to be identical twins, and uh, she admitted to having uh, a relationship with both of the men. And so I, you know, we did DNA testing on both of the men, and we found that they were indeed identical twins, and um, they. Um, match the child. So um, I was able to tell the judge that um, one of them is the father, but since they're identical twins, I couldn't tell the judge which one was the father, <laughs> only that one of them was. So in this particular case, the, the judge had, a, I think, an interesting way of resolving it. He figured, well, since you both were involved with the woman and we know one of you is the father, um, you, can, you can split the child support. Yeah, so so they're both, in that case, uh, neither one can be excluded, so they're both included (laughs) in the the child support payments. And, And, you know, there was a case years ago, I don't remember the case, but I've read about it many years ago where twin brothers were suspected. Actually, one of the brothers was suspected in the murder, but he said, hey, I'm I'm an identical twin. It could have easily been my brother. (laughs) And and, uh, that was another situation where only by... Interviewing witnesses and corroborating alibis and stuff, were they able to identify which twin 
Right. And usually that, you know, that's the case. Um, you know, if the other twin is not in the area um, at the time, um, you know, there's different ways to eliminate that person. And if fingerprints are left, they can certainly do it by fingerprint as well because those right. are, those are um, individualized to that person. It's, it's, while, while DNA uh, statistics are, are given, you, you, you say, you can't say it's 100% a certain person, but you can say within a reasonable degree of certainty based on one in one billion um, then, or whatever the statistic may be, you can, you can say with certainty that it's that person. Yeah, DNA has developed to the point where if it's a paternity test, um, you can exclude the man with certainty um, or include him with, with practically 100% certainty. You know, it might be 99.9999% certain. If it's a, a forensic case, um, you know, you can, again, you can, if, if the suspect's DNA does not match the evidence, then you know, well, then he's not the contributor of that evidence. Um, and if it does match... Um, you know, you know that the you, the frequency in, in, of that genetic profile, that DNA profile in the population, is so rare that it essentially is identity. So um, today's technology is is very um, very powerful. It, there's there's practically no very few crimes I think to, could not be solved with the use of DNA. Um, yeah, I want to just like in burglary even and car theft. And over the past decade it's even gotten more and more um, used more and more but also it's um, it's more and more accepted and the technology is so great that it's more and more accurate and it, it brings me to the the OJ case and we're running out of time we certainly don't have time to, to talk about the OJ case but th that was a case of of some bad collection by cops as well by the crime scene investigators who didn't collect exactly as they should have and then storage and then the whole thing being nullified because of sloppy work for one thing but um it's used in so not only in these in these high profile cases is it helpful but just in the regular joe blow case whether it's a burglary or robbery or rape or a murder it's it's used widely and and with great success and and i think it's important to to realize that um you know, DNA is, is a tool. It's a tool to the police. It's a tool to the prosecutor. It's a tool to the defense attorney as well, as well as the private investigator, as you know. And it's, it's not only to a tool to help convict the guilty, but it's also a tool to help exonerate the innocent and, and a tool that can provide speedy justice. Um, yeah, and actually all. a great tool that's gotten people off death row after they've been convicted and yes. sentenced to death. That, that's right. So, it, you know, it's, 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 I think too often maybe people think in terms of convicting people, but it's also for exonerating the innocent. Yeah. So it's, you know, it works both sides. Exactly. And there have been many cases from years ago. There's a, there's a group actually spearheaded by a couple of OJ lawyers um, who have the Innocence Project, and they get law students and criminal justice students to actually look over cases and find cases that may, where somebody may be exonerated. And they've been very successful in taking these old cases and going back and looking at evidence and having evidence analyzed with today's DNA where it might not have been used at all or might have been poorly used. 
when these people were were convicted and now they've been able to exonerate people so it's been very successful in that yep you're you're right about that uh dan i want to thank you for joining us today i really really appreciate it it's a very interesting subject both in the civil and the criminal realms and if you have questions for dan you can reach him at iglab at yahoo.com you can contact me at blazerinvestigative.com and i can put you in touch with dan also there's a lot of research out there online that you can you can find to if you're more interested in this topic you can certainly read things and look at things and explore codis c-o-d-i-s and also the national missing person dna database which is out there to uh, to identify missing persons once they're found, whether they're still alive or, or not. So thank you for joining us today. I want to thank Dustin, my producer, who's in the studio and keeps me on track and on time. Um, please uh, join us again next Thursday. My guest is going to be Cynthia Hetherington. Cynthia is a, an Internet expert. She's going to talk about Internet safety Um, social networking and keeping yourself safe, internet dating, how to keep your private stuff private and how you might be too exposed out there on the internet and what you can do about it if you are. So join us next week at 1 o'clock today. The Dottie Laster Show will be on, Trafficked, and you want to be sure and listen to her show. Um, Thanks again, Dan, for being with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Vicki. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. And we'll see you next week on Hear Women Talk for the Vicki Child Show.